We are continuing conversations with Yogananda. We are up to number 410. Keep your devotion. This is Master speaking. This whole, this whole one is simply a speech by him. It's a very beautiful speech. Keep your devotion in a state of reason. Without reason, devotion becomes too easily emotional. But don't be too rational either. Reason alone will never give you true understanding. It must be balanced with feeling. Understanding comes best when reason and feeling work together, each inspiring the other to flow upward. Look at a flower and ask, How come you to be so beautiful? How come you even to exist and your beauty to exist? Surely there is some greater intelligence at work behind you, forming you. And this great city of cells, your body, how did they come together into a homogeneous population? How do they work together so intelligently? Isn't there something behind the body more than what the biologists claim? How can you have sprung into existence by mindless accident as they teach? In these ways, reason can deepen and uplift your devotion. It's just, isn't that just so beautiful, the way he's thinking? The most amazing thing about this path is that on one hand you have uh, just the brilliance of the Gita commentary or Patanjali's Yoga Sutras or Swamiji writing Crises in Modern Thought even all those years ago. And then you have Master just telling you, just look at the flower and ask the flower how it came to be the flower. And just bringing um, all these different aspects of our nature together. And I mean, that's just such a childlike spirit, isn't it? Just to be in the presence of something that God made even to be in the presence of ourselves, but take the time to ask the question. It, it, you know, once, once it occurs to you that we're part of a greater reality, that we're not just egos operating on our own, you sort of see and feel that power everywhere. But before someone is willing to see that, there's just no amount of uh, persuasion that can that can tell them otherwise, and he's sort of talking about the two sides of things, where you know reason alone won't do it, but devotion without a clear mind can also lead you to confusion. I've I've uh, run into that difficulty sometimes in my efforts to help people, that when I see that they have a feeling about something, but they can't quite figure out what to do about it, they often resist the necessity to put out the mental energy to also have a clear idea of what you're doing. And I know with Swamiji, he, he never allowed us to be mentally lazy. And sometimes people in the name of devotion are just a little bit mentally lazy. And it's important to be able to tell the difference between... Um, being over-reasonable and just being a little lazy in your mind. 
You know, we, we un- it's, it's obvious when you're being physically lazy. If you um, clean the house but leave dirt in the corners or um, if, if you're, you know, just in different ways, if you, if you do something but you don't do it well, you, you put the food on the table but you don't put it in nice containers or you wash the dishes and they're not really completely washed or you keep your house messy. There's just ways in which we just, we're too lazy to put out the energy to really make things good. But mental laziness is equal to that, where you just kind of allow yourself to be fuzzy in your thinking and think that you're being spiritual. And instead, you have to be crystal clear, and then you have to balance between all, all the facts. Swamiji, it's very interesting because... Um, Swamiji was very objective about reality. Of course, he had all the feeling in the world, but he he never shied away from understanding the objective reality of things. I've been in discussions with some people lately, and it's, I'd rather go by intuition. Well, intuition is not reliable unless it's based on a perception of truth. So we also have to put out the energy to try to understand people and understand circumstances and know the facts. Swamiji was very, um, he wasn't uh, preoccupied with the world, but he was quite willing to engage and willing to, to look at, at things in, in worldly terms as well. Because devotion has to be kept in a state of reason, and reason has to be balanced by feeling understanding. I mean, I remember in one situation we were thinking of buying a certain business this was when we ended up opening a health food store in town. But uh, there was another store for sale. I believe I have this correctly. So we thought maybe we would buy the existing store rather than open our own. But the people were um, crass and sort of... Uh, they kept trying to drive a hard bargain and you know, they weren't cooperative with us. So we just walked away. It's just like it, the feeling of it wasn't right for him, even though there was a certain logic and so on like that. But it, it just, it, the feeling of it wasn't good and he just wasn't going to do it. He was willing to just look at it. I mean, we had an alternative and we took it and we were between alternatives. But I always remembered that. I thought I, I, nothing that starts with this kind of energy is going to come out well. So, but uh, both of them are true. And then Master just... He, he calls it reason, you know, to look at a flower and ask, how did you become so beautiful? To look at the cells in our body and ask, how did you ever get organized, you know, as he puts it into a homogeneous population? When you think of every cell as being individual, he calls that reason. Because you're using, you're starting with a feeling. He writes it completely as if it were about feeling. But what he's really talking about is about reason. Is that if we if we combine our feeling with reason, it'll bring us to true faith. It's, it's really a beautiful. I love just thinking, how did you come to be so beautiful? I was in uh, Singapore uh, it, in, at the end of July, and uh, the accommodations that they had arranged with us with the family didn't work, and so uh, we were put into a, a hotel, a pretty high-end hotel. And one of the features of Uh, high-end hotels is that they often have beautiful flower arrangements. And because uh, orchids are sort of the signature flower of Singapore, 
the flower display was just this huge, very huge, like, it was like, started at tabletop, but it went about five or six feet up, and it must have been about eight feet in diameter. I mean, and it was many, many orchid plants just growing so that they didn't have to renew it every day. But one of the orchids was just this extraordinary combinations of white and pink with little tiny, tiny flecks. And I, I just stood there looking at those for the longest time thinking, like, who are you? Why, why did you make yourself like this? And, you know, what, what is the spirit behind you that would manifest like this? Because it, it was so delicate and it was so beautiful and it's so exotic looking. I think it's exotic even if you see them all the time. You know, they're just... Orchids have a particular personality that's really different from daisies or something like that. Whenever I see flowers like that, I always think about the, the nature spirits. The, you know, who's in charge of those orchids? And what kind of a personality does the orchid devi, deva have compared to the, the other one over here? Um, when Hanel Cassidy was in charge of our garden, he was a, a, he'd been schooled in the Rudolf Steiner School of Biodynamic Gardening. Um, and uh, Shivani was telling me this because I, I wasn't in the garden. And I'm trying to remember for a minute which plant I'm trying to think of. When I took Shivani out to our farm, to Ananda Valley Farm, and she saw all the yarrow plants there, she told me that Hanel said, for a successful garden, you have to have five plants. It's important to have five, these five plants. One of them was yarrow. And then she mentioned the others. And then she mentioned this particular bush. I wish I could remember. But that particular bush has to be planted slightly away from the others because it's where the queen of the fairies lives. And she doesn't like to live with the ordinary population. <laughs> she likes to have her place away. I mean, Hannah was a very sophisticated, highly educated man, but this was the way that you had to work with the nature spirits, even including giving the queen a place that she would be really happy in, because then the nature spirits are very happy and they want to be there. If you set up conditions that don't please them, then they won't help you. Swamiji, I, I put this into the Light Bearer book, Swamiji... Um, commented that because mankind has been so insensitive to nature on this planet, he said the nature spirits are withdrawing. They're just, they're leaving the planet because people are not paying any attention to them and they want us, they want to help us work in harmony and we don't want to work in harmony and it, they're just not willing to fight us, basically leaving us on our own. It's, I mean, just the, the, the fact of that tells us how many other levels of things are happening. I believe that they're very present at Ananda. I think they're around us, and they're around anywhere where people cultivate them. But as, on the planet as a whole, why would they just keep arguing? It, it, it's When we think only about um, the most dry, rational we miss a great deal of what's really happening in the world, I think. And certainly, in terms of our relationships with God, much that's true cannot be easily grasped with the rational mind. 
and much that's true about the spiritual path only becomes apparent to us after a time. So if we only go by what we can reason out, then we limit ourselves to what we already know. Because new understandings come to us first by intuition. We just sort of have a feeling there's more to to what we're perceiving or experiencing. And then the thoughts will begin to come. I've certainly experienced that many times in my life, life that I, I can feel that something's not quite right. I can feel that some other situation is needed, and then it'll come to me what it is, but it comes, it, it's first, it's a feeling, and then the thoughts, are, it's almost like the thoughts are attracted by the feeling, or the thoughts gradually, I mean, the feelings gradually form themselves into thoughts. At least that's how, how I've experienced it. Reason follows feeling, that's what Master said. So it, it follows that the feeling would come first and the reason would come after. Anyway, it's very interesting. I mean, think about romance and how people fall in love and how often, you know, there's a feeling that comes first and then all the supporting evidence comes in afterwards. But the feeling comes in first. The way a parent loves a child, the way a child loves a puppy, you know, it's just, it's the feeling is just there first. And then, oh, he's so cute and then he does this and he's my friend and the baby's so darling and just all these things. But the feeling is first. And so if we don't allow those feelings, if we either reject them or have deadened ourselves to them, then reason itself is limited because it doesn't have that feeling element to inspire it. That's the Shakti, basically. If you think it is as uh, masculine-feminine balance, yin-yang balance, Shakti is the motivating force. Shakti motivates and then uh, reason follows. Um, So that's why they say, you know, uh, it's the feeling that makes you want to do it. That's why the male-female balance, whether it's within a person or however the gender expresses, that's the the origin of the phrase, behind every great man there's a great woman, is meaning behind the rational capacity to manifest in the world, there has to be a strong feeling energy. Because if there's no feeling, we don't act. If we just have thoughts, we don't act. We act because there's a feeling. We can know that the restaurant next door is the best restaurant in the world. We can memorize the menu. But if we're not hungry, we never go there. And so oftentimes men will have, have ideas, but it will be the female, either a part of themselves or the female in their life, who will say, okay, let's do it. You know, let's really make it happen. Because there has to be that. Uh, and, and on the spiritual path, it's exactly the same. Reason alone, it's too dry. You won't stick with it. Feeling alone, you can just get too confused. You have this feeling, then you have that feeling, then you have this intuition, then you have that intuition. At a certain point, you have to... Well, The word I use is not so much reason. It's just clear-mindedness. You have to be clear in your mind. You can't just vaguely sort of have feelings. You have to bring them to a point of clear focus, which isn't, isn't so much rational, but it's reasonable. You're not just running around being... Uh, um, compelled by whichever wave of feeling is going through you, you can actually articulate that feeling into a principle and then you can measure your feelings against that principle. But if you don't know what the principle is, if you can't bring it to a clear focus, then you often just get completely spun out by your feelings. That's why he said devotion alone is unreliable, unstable. What word does he use? 
too easily emotional, that's all he says. But the difference between devotion and emotion, also between feeling and emotion, devotion and emotion, let's see. He's talking about devotion becoming emotional. What, it, what happens then, devotion is uplifting and expansive and impersonal. Emotion becomes uh, uh, about me. It becomes concerned with self, and it also has a tendency to go into likes and dislikes. You know, um, When you think of, of devotion as feeling, as pure feeling, I think of it as like the trunk of the tree. And the trunk of the tree is, is rooted to the ground, and it's the point from which everything else expands, but it is the definition of the tree. Because you can prune it, you know, many different parts, you can shape it in many ways. As long as the trunk is there, then you have the essence of the tree. If you cut it at the trunk, then the tree is gone. So from the center of the tree, the, the life force can reach all the way out to the farthest branch. But if the, the, the sense of self transfers its identity to the farthest branch, then it's no longer drawing it directly from the source. Another way of thinking about it is the branch can be cut and it falls. And that's sort of like our likes and dislikes. If our devotion becomes emotional, then if, if, we're not, if our emotions are not pleased, then it can be cut and it'll fall. But when there's feeling, even if you've stretched all the way out to the end, if the branch is cut, you just retreat back to the feeling. So you could have, you know, you can have ideas and interests, but if you're standing in the center. And so that's sort of how, on the spiritual path, we learn to live in right relationship to God's will. And that's how we can have courage, even when what is being asked of us by life seems contrary to what we want. Because if it's just emotional, we have nothing supporting us. But if it's devotional, we can still reach out in hope. We can still reach out in prayer for something to happen. But if it's, if it's rooted in clear, a clear principle, then, even, then we're not vulnerable. Even if we, if we become enamored or even confused, we haven't disconnected. But without a clear principle, that's what we're really needing. What, what, is the, what is the principle in every situation? The yamas or the niyamas or the devotion to God or God's will or whatever it might be. But then spinning all that out, what is being asked of me? Why is this my dharma? You know, what does it mean to serve God? These, all these clear principles keep our feeling in mind. That's how I felt from the first that I got onto the spiritual path. I felt that there was a, a, a line of principle that, I, that I, I understood and that I believed in. And then I could measure things. I had a point of measuring because I could have lots of feelings about things. I get very enthusiastic about this and enthusiastic about that. But I could never, I didn't have any point of reference. Once I had the principles of the path, then no matter what happened, I could always reference them. A friend of mine raised eight children, and she was a, is a devotee. And uh, she took the yamas and the niyamas, which are the, the rules of behavior according to Patanjali, which are the, the virtues, the, 
the restraint, restraining yourself from bad action and allowing right action to come through, and they happen to be ten, just like the Ten Commandments. And she put them up with brief explanations on the refrigerator of the family home. And she trained her children in right behavior by training them about the yamas and the niyamas. Whenever anything would happen among the children that was causing difficulty, they would all go to the refrigerator. (laughs) It was also clever because, to a certain extent, the refrigerator was actually the disciplinarian. (laughs) But because there were principles there. And no matter how you felt about what was going on, you could come back and see how what you had done related to ahimsa or to non-lying or to non-covetousness or to, or to uh, self-control, brahmacharya, or, cont- or contentment. And, of course, those are divinely inspired. So everything in the tumultuous life of her children one way or another would be related to the yamas and the niyamas. But of course you have to really understand the yamas and the niyamas. You have to put out the energy to be clear on the principle and then have enough reason to be able to figure out just because you want it whether or not it's actually true. And, and the other aspect of feeling is we, we, we often have very strong feelings. We often have feelings that are very, feel very right to us. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're super consciously inspired. Because we are many we are many different levels of awareness all within the same frame. So uh, something could feel very right to you because it's completely in harmony with our subconscious inclinations. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's super consciously inspired. And so it, that's why when we sometimes talk about intuition, we say how to know and trust your higher guidance. And once again, emotion will tend toward reinforcing our, um, our biases, our subconscious bias. And reason helps us to see whether or not what level we're being influenced from. So even very passionate feeling, even you know, wild, intense feeling, devotional feelings, may still not be um, as super-conscious as we might like them to be. And so we have to stop and ask, you know, where is this coming from? Does that make sense? Any comments or questions about that? Well, what, what uh, Chinambar is referring to is a story that's elsewhere in here where one of them, I think it was just one of the monks, was very emotional in expressing his devotion and the other monks thought it was excessive and not appropriate. But Master supported the man in his excessive devotion and uh, encouraged him rather than discouraged him. So one doesn't know if he was working with that one man who perhaps it was enormously important for him to be able to be that free with his emotions, whether he was also giving an example to the other monks who may have been too far on the side of reason and were afraid to let their devotion flow. But what, well, that was, you had the Guru's grace in that, but you had to apply reason to a situation you couldn't just have a principle. I mean, you couldn't just have a preference. You had to to feel it in all ways. Yeah, it's hard to say. That's why you have to work, that's why it's always, that's a process. That's what I would say. 
Anything else? Any other comments? All right, number 411. This is a long... Um, uh, this is a long story that is all, all Swamiji reflecting on something Master said. Previous one was Master's speech. This is all Swamiji's writing. I, Walter, as Swamiji calls, as Master called him, so as he calls himself in this book, I, Walter, was complaining mentally against a directive of the Master's. This happened a few months after I'd come to him. He had given me, I thought, a task that contradicted what he himself was constantly urging me to do, to develop devotion. What he was asking of me now was to write articles for our magazine. After my little, after my little mental rebellion, I wrote Master a short note of apology. He says mental rebellion because he never said anything to Master, but he was rebelling inwardly, so then he apologized to him. In response, Master first demanded that I explain myself. When I had done so, he didn't explain to me carefully why he had given me that intellectual task. Instead, he answered quite brusquely, living for God is martyrdom. It's a phrase that Swami repeats in a lot of different contexts. Um, so it's really interesting to hear exactly where it came from. Swami was trying to develop devotion. Master wanted him to develop devotion. Master, the, more of this, Master told him uh, to write articles for the magazine. And he told him to use his evening hours after work to write articles. Swami protested. He said, but I'm using my evening hours to meditate. And Master said, no, you have to write articles. So I mean, he was actually telling him, to cut down on his meditation time to write these articles, even though his consistent instruction to Swamiji was that he was, his guidance was too intellectual and he needed to develop devotion. So Swami's chanting and meditating and developing devotion, and Master says, write articles. So Swami mentally rebelled, is how he put it. And then he just probably wrote, I apologize to you, sir, for my bad attitude. Master says, what bad attitude? Not meaning not that he didn't know, but... Also, a master demanded that people, and this is again, this is a state of reason, master wanted us to bring our thoughts out into real expression. I'm sure he worked intuitively and in silence also, but he, he sometimes just made people express themselves. So anyway, he answered, master answered quite brusquely, living for God is martyrdom. I was taken aback. He hadn't even tried to help me. He hadn't even tried to help me to resolve my dilemma. I resigned myself, however, to his answer and decided he wanted me to have more faith in his guidance as my guru. I understood later that in keeping me intellectually active, he was saying he didn't want me to starve my intellect because Swami was getting into an either-or attitude. I'm too intellectual, so I'll just be devotional. He didn't want me to starve my intellect. He also, he knew Swami was going to have to serve through his intellect. And he also knew that it was Swami's nature to be intellectual. And it wasn't, um, I actually, I, I figured this out in the same way with Swami. It wasn't that he wanted him to lessen his intellect. He wanted him to raise his heart. So uh, that's, that, uh, when I was, when I knew Swamiji at the beginning, and I was so uh, 
impressed just by his intelligence. I just didn't, I just didn't know what to do with someone who just could, could look at any situation, could answer any question, could deal with any issue just brilliantly. And I, I don't just mean effectively, but just his answers, his way of thinking, what he would see in the situation, it was just so enormous compared to what any of the rest of us could even imagine. And I began to just think, how can one man be so intelligent? Because it, it wasn't intellectual. It wasn't like he could quote from books and give you lots of references. And, uh, you know, it wasn't like that at all. He was intelligent, which is quite different than being intellectual. And I finally realized it was because his heart was so well-developed. And that he just had this uh, intuitive capacity to em- embrace the totality of something. And once he would do that, whether it was people or situations, he was also fearless. It's just like there was nothing... He didn't have to exclude the perception of anything. Whereas most of us, because we're so caught in our emotions, we, 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 we can only accept certain realities. And as a consequence, we can only think in certain channels. Swami was fearless, just completely fearless. Whatever was true was true. And as a result, his, his intellect wasn't limited by limited feeling. His feeling was unlimited, and therefore so was his understanding. Anyway, he was saying that he didn't want me to starve my intellect. Heart quality, in other words, should not be developed at the expense of the intellect. And that was sort of the same thing I was saying about sometimes people think to be devotional is not to put out mental energy. And that devotion isn't a substitute or an excuse for mental laziness. Which, you know, Swami was anything but mentally lazy. And I was starting to say earlier, you know, he just wouldn't tolerate that in us. When we were sort of vague and just kind of not thinking very clearly and only half aware, it was not my nature to be that way. But I, I did lack, I, I did lack uh, strength. I, I lacked mental strength. So he really had to teach me to persevere. So in that sense, I was a little lazy. But uh, people who are inclined to really just not keep their minds awake, Swamiji would, uh, you know, he would, he would make sure that that didn't happen. <laughs> One of my friends said he used to sort of say things that were only half sensible to her, you know, and then when she would kind of concur out of lack of paying attention, he would then, you know, just keep going until she got, until she broke the habit. And she really started putting out energy to hear. So he said, heart quality, in other words, should not be developed at the expense of the intellect. Feeling without reason, in fact, could lead me as far astray as I'd been misled by intellect. So that's the essence of it. I didn't want at that time to face, in fact, I rejected for years, the thought that what he was also asking of me was that I dedicate myself to a life of, as, quote, intense activity, as he told me I must. My own deepest desire was to go deep in meditation. I didn't mind being active also to any extent necessary, but what I really longed for was silent inner communion with God. That was his preference. What the Master had meant by martyrdom 
was that he wanted me to renounce even this desire. You know, that's very hard for people to comprehend. It's twofold. It's, it's um, I mean, a, a desire that brings us spiritual freedom is better than a desire that brings us spiritual bondage. But there's a point of subtlety on the spiritual path where to have any sense of self and one's own preferences is bondage and has to be overcome. So even the desire that what I prefer to do is to go into silent meditation was still Swamiji existing as a separate entity with his own opinion. And, you know, very subtle and not by any means the lesson that everybody needs. You know, just because it was an appropriate lesson for Swamiji doesn't mean it's an appropriate lesson for everyone. Some people have to bring themselves to the point where they actually are self-motivated enough to have preferences or self-motivated enough to, to, to focus on something with real commitment. But for Swamiji, the willpower wasn't lacking, the commitment wasn't lacking. There was just this, you know, last surrender that Master wanted from him. And that's why he said, perhaps there were other martyrdoms in my future, Swamiji thought at that time. But clearly what he wanted in this instance, in fact he said so, was that I surrender precious meditation time in order to write articles. So he had to, he had to martyr his desire for silence and instead work. Karma yogi, evidently not Raja yoga, was my destined lot. So that was also what Master was saying because, you know, Master was only with Swamiji for three and a half years. And, and Swami had no idea that his uh, time with his guru in the body was going to be so short. And Master must have known that. So Master put a lot of thoughts out that many of them Swamiji didn't pick up on for years but or didn't understand the implications of it. But many years later, it occurred to him that Master knew exactly what he was doing. There's another um, conversation way earlier in this book, which is all about this unusual interaction he had when he was with Master and when he was with Taramata. And and Taramata was Swami's nemesis uh, years later, after, after Master had passed away. It was Taramatu who engineered that Swamiji should be expelled from SRF in 1962. And um, Ma- Swami tells us of this instant, this whole thing, which I'm not going to try to repeat because it's in this book, um, which was the only time that he and Taramata and Master were together. And there was a lot of subtlety to that. I'm just going to see if I can find which. Let me see if it's here. Pratt, Lori Pratt. Okay, I apologize. Okay. Well, anyway, any of you who are watching this now, because there's a number of references to her, so I don't know which one it is. I'll look up this one and just see, and then I'll go on. Yes, there it is. It's number 115. Yeah, there it is. It's exactly what. So in, in any case, often much later in life, I've certainly found this with Swami, often many, many years later, I realized that he, he, he prepared me for this without being explicit, 
You know, he didn't say, 25 years from now, thus and so will happen. But he said something that I realize now was referencing a situation that was many years in the future to come. So Master was telling Swami what his life was going to be, and Swamiji was just a young, enthusiastic monk, and he had his own ideas about what it was. But Master needed to make sure that the seed, the proper seeds were planted. Because Swamiji himself says, um, I didn't want at that time to face, in fact, I rejected for years, the thought that what he was also asking of me was that I dedicate myself to a life of intense activity. Swamiji's preference when he came in was that he was going to be a meditator and he was just going to meditate. Um, But that wasn't what Master wanted and it was martyrdom for Swamiji to do it because his own inclination went one way and in order to serve he went the other way because we have to overcome all thought of self. And see, that's what happens. We think, oh, meditation is what I'm supposed to do, communing with God is what I'm supposed to do. No, actually... What we're supposed to do is to transcend the self. Now, of course, meditation will help you transcend the self. Communing with God will help you transcend the self. But what we're supposed to do is transcend the self. So if that means you have to martyr even your spiritual desires, if the guru tells you, and we can't use this as a rationalization for our own self, ah, the world needs Martha's too, (laughs) as Swami says in in another place. Uh, but uh, anyway evidently karma yoga not raja yoga was my destined lot it took me years to reconcile myself to the fact I mean that's why master called it martyrdom it took him years to reconcile himself to it he often said to us because he never really um, had the the years of seclusion the long end of life seclusion never anywhere in there He, he took he took seclusion frequently. Someone mentioned to me one of the things that they noticed in Light Bearer, the book, was how often Swami went into seclusion. It's just, and I realized when they said that, of course, I was always writing it. When Swami came back, he went into seclusion. He took the month of February in seclusion. He was in Assisi and he went into seclusion. He spent a lot of time, relatively speaking. Um, yeah, let me phrase it differently. He regularly took periods of seclusion. But he, he always had in his mind, and let me phrase it, he acted as if he expected that at the end of his life he would, he would go into a long period of seclusion because many great souls rith- just simply withdraw from the world at the end. And they, they drop everything and do that. Um, Swami did withdraw at the, in the last years of his life. His personality changed radically and he became much more withdrawn and more inward and more inwardly communing and less engaged with the world. But he never, I mean, at the very end, the last uh, months of his life, he was touring around India, traveled all the way back to Italy. I mean, he was really, at the time when his body absolutely didn't even work, and he had to have Shurjo on one side and Narayani on the other, even to just walk, he was still traveling and lecturing. He just never stopped, because... It took him years to reconcile himself, but by the time he did, he really did. And, and then he, at the very end of his life, he wrote, um, basically, I used to have a lot of preferences. I used, and my greatest preference was not to be in this world at all. As he said, I used to, you know, I felt more at home in higher spheres. He, he wrote, but I've come to realize that wherever God puts me, 
that's where bliss is. What difference does it make? If he'd just been allowed to do what he wanted, um, one wonders, you know, if he could have spoken the same way. Certainly, I know in my own life, if I had been allowed to do what I wanted, it, it, uh, I would still be doing it. <laughs> and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have learned what I've learned. <clears throat> and now going on with Swami's talk, he said, it, karma yoga rather than raja yoga was my destined lot. It took me years to reconcile myself to the fact. Yet, he had been sent to the West with a mission to accomplish. It was my, and this is Swami's balancing to reconciling myself, yet, yet he had been sent, yet Master had been sent to the West with a mission to accomplish. It was my great privilege, not my misfortune, <clears throat> that he wanted me to serve his work outwardly. You know, that, that is, a, I have by no means am I drawn to a life of solitude or inner communion. I'm a karma yogi through and through. <clears throat> so there's been no martyrdom in asking me to do that. But there's been a very conscious awareness that Master came with a great mission and Swami had a lot of responsibility for that mission and it's my job to help him. And uh, as I say, there's been no uh, feeling that I've had to renounce something else I would have wanted to do. But just that fact, it's a privilege to serve this work. Far from being any kind of a imposition, I'm, I'm exceedingly ambitious to serve this work. <clears throat> Swami goes on to say, others had resisted Master's hope in this regard, his hope that they would embrace responsibility for the work. It's Swamiji took responsibility for Master's work, and I mean, look at it, on a colossal scale, and no other disciple even came close. It just, it just didn't happen. If I, by sacrificing my inner life, could serve him as others hadn't done, that was my great blessing. Meaning, um, he, Swami by that statement is not trying to, to put down other people, but he's saying, um, you know, Master didn't have a lot of people who came through for him, and I was very, in this respect, but I was very happy that I could be one of them. You know, it, because it wasn't like Swamiji was one of, of 15 who were all working for his mission on the level that Swami was. He stands alone. So it, it, it was even more incumbent upon Swami that he take it on. So, indeed, by heeding the Guru's will, I have found increasing inner joy. And that, of course, is the end point that one would not have, he wouldn't have found what he'd wanted if he'd resisted. And Master knew that. I mean, it's a twofold. It's that Swami's fulfillment lay in doing what, what in, in the life that Master knew was the right life for him. Swami's fulfillment lay in cooperating with what Master asked of him. Remember how in the Autobiography of a Yogi, uh, there's that, story about how Sri Yukteswar was such a hard taskmaster and many people didn't want to be with him because he was just too um, unrelenting in his demands of his disciples and and determined in Master's case to drive out 
uh, any um, any aspect that that didn't that wasn't completely free and sort of. I mean, it's it, you're sort of hard to say all these words because Master was an avatar, but nonetheless, the lila of discipleship and delusion was played out there. Master writes about the misunderstandings and the personality he had and how Sri Yukteswar had to work with it. I don't really know how to think that through. But Master talks about the time when he was bringing, there was a huge public lecture and there was a big audience and Master trips over the rug and Sri Yukteswar calls him a clumsy oaf in front of everyone. I mean, that, you know, that would be a, a very ego-destroying experience in front of all those people to be reprimanded in such a an inelegant manner by your guru and everybody laughed because Sri Yukteswar was mocking him and then Master said he just looked out at all those people and he thought not one of you has what I have you know you may laugh at me you may think that it's a joke that my guru is, is disciplining me but but not one of you has gained what I've gained by the discipline he's imposed upon me. And it's, it's a very interesting, just the whole incident is very interesting. So Swami also says, here, you know, I, I would have chosen something else for myself if I'd been left to my own. <clears throat> and Swami had the willpower to meditate like that. It wasn't, <clears throat> it wasn't an idle ambition. It, it was in him to do that. But Master said, no, this is not where your bliss, this is not the means by which bliss will come to you. And Swami said, yes, it's proven true. But he also, the other part about living for God is martyrdom, is that people are always wanting to decide what they feel like doing. And this is a very sensitive issue because you also have to develop the intuition to feel what you should do. But this goes back to what I was saying in the previous, about the previous one. Merely because you feel to do something does not mean it's liberating for you. And, and that's why one's, even Swamiji, with all the intuition he had, he asked people's advice and he took that advice seriously. Because he, he felt that where, where oneself is concerned, um, the possibility of being misled by egoic preferences is so high that one must be on, constantly um, on guard against it. And so, um, let's see, I had a thought there. But without Master there to tell you exactly, it's, it's just, it's a little bit of a fine line. So just something, oh, so that's where just remembering that, that the spiritual path is not just I get to do what I feel. The spiritual path is I do what God asks of me. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, I was thinking the other day about um, her ashram because uh, when we started going to India in 1987 on our pilgrimage journeys, uh, somewhere along the line, we, we started visiting her uh, places, a couple of her places in Calcutta. And she would, they would have a 5.30 a.m. mass, I think. And she would attend that mass, and and after the mass, she would meet with foreigners who had come to see her. So in order to have her darshan, 
we would have to get up at 5.30, go to the Mass, and then she would see us. And after the Mass was over, the sisters all started their day. And the, 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 the place we visited, which I might have even been their head, headquarter ashram, it was one of those uh, in, uh, old concrete-style Indian buildings with small rooms and an open courtyard. And at, after the Mass, the nuns would be in the center courtyard They would be wearing a clean garment and they would be washing the one from the day before in buckets, hanging it on the line so it would be clean for the next day. There was just nothing of of comfort um, in that ashram. It wasn't wasn't, uh, ugly, but it was absolutely um, utilitarian. And they lived in, they had a very regimented life and then they went out and worked in the slums and helped the dying and so on like that. I Honestly, I thought to myself, I've, I've been there, I have done it. When I watched those women washing out the one garment, wearing the other, I thought, you know, it's about as natural as breathing to me. I could have just been there and I could have just stepped into that life. But I'm so glad it's not my life anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like there's a power in that. Um, just that constant, but it's it is also one overcomes completely one's inclinations. There's just no space for your inclinations. Your life is this, and that's all there is, and you just do it, and you do it with your whole self, and everything else is driven out of you. But wow, isn't that terrific? The the what you have to understand of martyrdom is that. It's not, it's not I who am being martyred. It's my delusions. So it, it, when we think of when we suffer because we're doing that, we've missed the point. But when we recognize that, oh, I get to sacrifice everything for God. Master said that the martyrs who were physically martyred, he said they didn't suffer because their love for God spared them from that. And that's how we have to feel about if we feel our personal desires are being martyred. So here's the last paragraph, Master Swami writes. Moreover, Swami says, I recall my own thought the day I came to him. This message is so wonderful, it should be known everywhere, Swami said to Master. Master knew and appreciated this deep desire. It was what had helped bring him, bring me onto the path. And Swamiji said it was only after he himself told Master how deeply he wanted to share these teachings with the world that Master started speaking to him of the great work that Swami had to do. So it wasn't that Master imposed it on Swami. It was that Master saw that this was what Swami himself wanted. And then Master saw to fulfill that desire will not be fulfilled through meditation alone. And so then he began to move him in the, in the direction of the deeper feeling that Swami had. Not the superficial one, but the deeper one that was really his true nature. Okay, let's take a few minutes break. All right? All right, number 412. On the evening when the Master recorded some of his cosmic chants, I had to leave early to conduct the Wednesday evening service at the Hollywood Church. Can you imagine? 
Master's recording these chants and you have to go give a service. That rarely happened to me when I was with Swamiji, but because I never allowed, I never made any commitments. And then he sent me over to start teaching at the retreat. And then sometimes I had to leave because I had a commitment. <sighs> Gosh, that was hard. So just him saying this, Swami may have been braver than I, but gosh, I just remember having to walk out the door at different times and not be part of things. (sighs) Swami goes on, On my return, the recording was completed. I found the master on the lawn outside, listening to one of the chants as it was played back over a loudspeaker. What lightning flash glimmers in thy face? Seeing thee, I am thrilled through and through. The master began almost to dance, his arms outstretched to the side, his eyes closed. He was swaying back and forth in ecstasy. Play it again, he requested, then again and again. All of us on that occasion were deeply moved. Outside at Mount Washington, listening standing with Master, listening to him sing that song. Gosh, Swami puts it with so few words, you just really, you're standing there. Afterwards, as he was leaving, he said quietly, I see all of you as images of light. Everything, the grass, the trees, the bushes, everything I see is made of light. You've no idea how beautiful it all is. Now, think of that. The master looked at every person. He said, all I see is an image of light. I mean, just, I mean, look at each other. Let's look at yourself. What do we see? You know, we see the face, we see the body, we see the personality. And, but what masters would see, because, I mean, even scientific teaching without any spirituality at all, says that everything we're looking at is actually just a pattern of light. But we haven't, we haven't activated those um, organs of perception. The, the organ of perception that we've activated is the one that sees the material world. The, the one that sees the light behind it is dormant. You know, in the earlier one where he was, in the earlier one we read tonight, where he was talking about the flower and looking at the flower and what made you so beautiful. There's a picture of a lotus on this thing. What made you so beautiful? Why are you like that? You know, it's, it's like it, what, what you're trying to do with devotion is you're trying to activate the non-material organs of perception, which is the, 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 the power behind the material that would actually look and see what this world is. It's amazing to contemplate that the astral world is not physically separate from here. Just think about, but it's, it's, sim- it's simultaneous because it's levels of vibration. And that's what we're talking about. We perceive a certain level of vibration and therefore we see a physical world. If we could see a higher level of vibration, we would see a light universe. It's right here. It's not like we have to go somewhere. We just have to improve our capacity to perceive. I mean, think about people who have near-death experiences. You're 
in a hospital bed, you're on the operating table, and suddenly you're not. But you are. The, everything that you've called yourself is still there, but you're just gone from there because you've activated um, the capacity to perceive a, a, another universe than this one. And then people who talk about those experiences will talk about suddenly going back, you know, reversing down that tunnel and then thunk, they're just back here and all of a sudden all they can perceive reality with is the physical senses and so suddenly they're looking at physical reality again. So you have this picture of master, you know, and you could feel because they were all uplifted that you would almost think they could almost see it, almost see what he could see. It, it, yes, I mean, that, that is the Master's capacity to perceive all levels of reality simultaneously. He was in all the worlds at the same time. It's just very... But Master especially, uh, Swamiji talked about the fact that Master's, as he said, Master had achieved liberation so long ago that he, was, he, he didn't have to in any way protect himself from the world. He didn't have to guard his realization. Um, without meaning to make comparisons, Swamiji talked about Ramana Maharshi as an example. He was very austere and very withdrawn from the world. And he was a, 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 certainly a realized being. But it was partly his incarnation, but also Swami contrasted the two of them that Master just could move completely freely in this world because his perception was never... Um, he, 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 he could live in all the worlds simultaneously. Swamiji actually moved very freely in the world. There was a, a Swami in India, a very advanced Swamiji, Swami, who had tremendous, limitless regard for Swami Kriyananda. And, and he, he said to us, he said, you have no idea what you really have in him. He said, he's, he's so free. He said, most souls, you know, on the level that he operates, he said, have to insulate themselves from the world. Swami never did. He just moved through it. it it's just, one, I don't know how, I think that was in Narayani's book. Was that in Narayani's book? I can't really remember where I put it. It was, it, she was the one who had the experience with the, swam, with the other Swami. Um, Yes, and came out to see Swami Kriyananda. But he spoke emphatically that... But certainly Master lived there so that he could see the light or see the world, whichever was required in the moment. You know, um, There's a story in Swami Kriyananda as we have known him. And I don't think it's anonymous, but I won't say the name in case it is. Pretty sure it's not. But the woman who told the story was at a satsang with Swami and she, she was sitting very close to him and she suddenly felt that his consciousness came into her and she perceived as he perceived and when she looked at people they were just radiant light. She had that experience that instead of seeing faces she just saw this light emanating from people individually and she, she could tell that it was an experience he had given her. It wasn't. He'd, 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 he'd opened his world to her. You know. 
these are, of course, subjective experiences, but that whole book is subjective. People, this is how they perceived it. Now they, it, it was very interesting to think of. You know, and, and on that level, then, then Swami could read the karma and see who we were, because he wasn't just looking at our faces and trying to... I mean, I have to ask people questions. Where are you from? What did you do? What is your job? You know, you have children. I, I have to ask them lots of questions in order to understand who they are. I can't just look at someone and know. Swami said, just a glance, he said, and I can know all about a person. I put that in the book. He never let on in, in life, but uh, it was true. Okay, number 413. The more you do what your mind tells you, the Master told us, the more you will become a slave. But the more you do Guru's will, the more you will find yourself becoming inwardly freed. Taking this counsel to heart, I discovered for myself that it was true. Never had such a feeling of inner freedom been mine as came by attuning myself with his will. Now it's notable here that he uses the word attuning myself with his will because Swamiji himself, most of his life of discipleship was not in physical proximity with Master. I mean, people often say, oh, I need a living guru. How can I, you know, I, I need someone to guide me. And I mean, that all sounds well and good, but you have Swami Kriyananda, who's the absolute epitome of discipleship. And he, he was with Master from the age of 22 until Swami was 25. By the time he was 25, Master was gone. So the vast majority of Swami's life, he did not have a living guru, physically living. But Master's will was, was just as accessible to him as it had been before. Because you also have to understand that merely having someone tell you something is not the same as attuning yourself to the will of the guru. Physical proximity may, may help, but it doesn't guarantee. You're either inwardly in tune or you're not. I mean, many people... Well, Swami just said that Mount Washington continued to be a hotel, as he put it. People just kept checking in and out. And they just didn't perceive. And, and also, you see, Master didn't write Autobiography of Yogi until 1946. And even still, Autobiography of Yogi doesn't say, I am an avatar. It doesn't even hint that I am an avatar. It makes it seem like, wow, what an experience he had being a disciple of some really great souls. It doesn't declare himself to be one of those great souls. That's why Swami had to write the path. He said it's the job of the disciple to tell the world who the guru is. It's not the job of the guru to tell him. And there was no... You have to realize that the culture that became SRF, that created the persona of Master that started explaining him to the world, did not exist when Master was alive. So Master was there, and he was completely natural, and he was completely relaxed in the world, and uh, people had to perceive it. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't in any way this clear-cut, sort of, this is who he is, he's a Master, this is what it means. All of that was created after he passed. So the ability to attune, and to even to know what you were attuning to and why you were attuning to it, Many people just, it just came and went. Because it, his advice wasn't always congenial. And, and one had to have a, a, 
first a deep commitment to truth, the capacity to persevere to, over, to transcend one's sense of self, and the intuition to know that this man could tell you. None of which is guaranteed by physical proximity. And, and all of which is accessible whether the being is there or not. I often have thought about this when I, I think about the fact that a self-realized master is only going to incarnate every so often. Whereas disciples are going to have to incarnate a lot more because we have a lot more karma to work out. So, so one is, if one is going to be consistent in one's relationship to a guru through multiple incarnations, inevitably one will have many in which the guru is not physically present. And one is either guided entirely intuitively or one is guided by the disciples of that master. Because it's through those who are in tune with the guru that the guru's consciousness is also conveyed. And so this is what Swami said, um, never had such a feeling of inner freedom, freedom been mine as came by attuning myself with his will. So Swami's attunement with Master's will was continuous for whatever, the 60 years, 70 years that he was a disciple, not just three when he was there to speak to him. Very important to remember that. Number 414. Boone, uh, this man with the name of Daniel Boone, who was one of uh, Master's uh, gurubais, Swami's gurubais there with Master, living in Mount Washington, who didn't, wasn't able to hold to the life that he was drawn to, even though he had, he had great good karma and a lot of realization. Boone, under the spell of a violent delusion, wrote the master a long, scathing letter filled with accusations of imaginary failings in the master. This is not as unusual as you might think. Some very great souls that I know have written letters to Swamiji that they later regretted. These things happen. You just get caught up in a, a whirlpool or you get influenced by people who have strong magnetism, more magnetism than wisdom, and you get challenged to accept things that your reason can't embrace. And all of a sudden you're writing the master a scathing letter about his imaginary shortcomings. This young man must have seen later that his missive had been, as such things always are, a projection of his own faults. For he didn't leave at that time as his letter had announced that he would. So he has a fit and he gets really upset and he thinks master isn't a good guru and he writes him the scathing letter but apparently he figured out later that maybe not all of that was true. The master, when he saw him next, referred only in passing to the letter. His comment held a note of sincere appreciation. Boone, you should take up writing. <laughs> that was the best letter Satan ever wrote me. <laughs> Don't you just love it? You also love that master just took it in stride. It's like, okay, he's gotten confused. Just because he's gotten confused, I'm not going to abandon him. My friendship isn't based on his being perfect. My friendship is based on the fact that I love him and I'm committed to him. So Master wrote him, Boone wrote him a crazy letter saying that 
But Master could just look at it and say, this has nothing to do with me. This is, this is my disciple struggling with the delusion. So if my disciple is struggling with the delusion, now is the time I have to move closer to him, not farther away. When, um, when we were engaged in the Bertolucci lawsuit, which is the sexual harassment lawsuit that was the second half of the 90s for us, um, and Swamiji was accused of egregious behavior. This was a total character assassination of Swami Kriyananda under the guise of this woman having had an affair with a married man. She just said that Swami Kriyananda was a perverted monster and all of Ananda was just a sham. I was saying, I think I mentioned this on Sunday, we ended up having a judgment against us in that case for lots of fascinating reasons. One of which was the entire thing was so preposterous we actually didn't realize how dangerous it was. You know, when somebody walks up to you and says, you're an eight-foot giraffe and you're covered with purple spots, you don't actually think that people are actually going to decide that you are an eight-foot giraffe. I mean, because it seems like, am I? Yes, yes, it's obvious. Look, you're covered with spots and I can tell that you're eight feet tall. What? But it happened. So in any case, Swami was accused of all these terrible things and people began to uh, uh, be outraged that he was, you know, that he could behave in such a way. He was, he was accused, not convicted, but they were outraged that he could behave in such a way. Swami's answer was really interesting. I mean, in, he, we, we had a number of things. He... He mostly refused to defend himself, but every so often he would say something that was helpful to us, like, you know me well, and the people who have accused me you don't know at all, but you've chosen to believe them instead of believe your own experience of me for all these years. That was the first question he asked. And the second was, he said, if what I am accused of is true, He said, that means that I am in a great deal of trouble. And he said, I have been your friend when you were in trouble. He said, I didn't abandon you when you uh, behaved badly and fell under delusion. He said, "Uh, what kind of a friend are you if in this moment you're abandoning me? Isn't that interesting? You know, where people were just in it for themselves. I'm here to get what I can from you. And if I think you can't give me anything, then I'm just going to leave you. I mean, that's not discipleship. That's certainly not love. It's not friendship either. And it was really, it was a good, either, either way you took it. He was either guilty as accused or not guilty. But either way, um, that response was not an admirable one. And, you know, people who were deep really thought about it. But I've actually thought about that a lot since. Uh, I've recently had some difficulties with a, a person that I, I am close to, but at the moment we're not um, communicating very well. And I thought, well, they're having a difficult time and they're taking it out on me a little bit. So this is not the time to abandon them. It may be that it, we can't communicate well and so there may be nothing I can do outwardly. But why would I become angry and withdraw? They're in trouble. Because the friend, you know, it, in one way or another, because the friendship is falling apart. And if the friendship is falling apart, that's a problem. It's not a reason to run, run for the hills. Yes? I just 
the comment is that, that it was hurtful to Swami's heart that people responded that way. Yes, of course it was. You know, he'd given a, he'd given true friendship, and but it was hurtful on the uh, he'd been hurt so much. It was I mean that whole period was so difficult. It was a period of time in which you get to find out that even a little bit of positive expectation is too much. That it's God alone and God alone and God alone. People are well-meaning, but they're unreliable. That's basically what it comes down to. People have very good hearts, but they're unreliable because we ha- we're not perfect. So that's what happens. People promise you they mean well, they behave well, but then if they get pushed beyond their present capacity to hold firm to their ideals, um, they won't be able to meet your expectations. Just because we're unreliable. I'm unreliable. I know I am. I have, I have many intentions I can't fulfill. So... Why am I so shocked that other people are unreliable? But I am, less so than I used to be. But why am I hurt that people um, are unreliable? Where, where does that come from? It, becomes, it comes from an expectation that I will be protected by others and not, by, not just by God. And whatever extent that delusion lives in your heart, Divine Mother's going to make sure she roots it out. So be it. One last paragraph here. The Master, when we saw him next, I see, you should take up writing. That was the best letter Satan ever wrote me. His admiration was ungrudging (laughs) and a beautiful reflection on his own complete humility. See, I mean, what Master didn't care so this man thought he was awful. It's like, what did Master care? There was no part of him that said, no, I'm not. How dare you say that to me? Especially he also knew how best to handle this man. Indeed, as he once said, how can there even be humility when there is no consciousness of self? And so that's the answer to what I was saying earlier about whatever there is in there, it all has to be gone until there's absolute self-forgetfulness. Even even one or two conditions requires more self than spiritual freedom allows. All right. Okay. That'll be it for tonight. We went from 4.10 through 4.14. Okay. Thank you all.